Today's Dead Idea, this is the conclusion of our short two-part series on fascism. Today we are unearthing America's own homegrown fascist movement. The TV series Man in the High Castle, based on the novel by Philip K. Dick, is set in a 1960s world where the Nazis won World War II and took over America. But what most people don't realize is that you don't need a Nazi conquest to result in America like that. In fact, America had its very own homegrown fascist movement, and that's not alternative history, that's a straight-up truth. It's more than a bit ironic, considering that we Americans tend to paint World War II as our great shining moment when we were clearly the good guys fighting, clearly the bad guys, you know, we punched Hitler in the mustache, that kind of thing. We call that generation the greatest generation, but there is a little asterisk on the end of that. Never mind our history of slavery and manifest destiny. Never mind that at the time we had the Ku Klux Klan and Jim Crow laws, after which Hitler actually modeled some of his anti-Semitic legislation. But in fact, above and beyond those not small things, the truth of the matter is that American popular opinion was not in favor of the war until Pearl Harbor, and before that, many were actually in favor of the German side. And the cherry on top is that the United States had its own fascist movement, which fielded its own presidential candidate in the 1936 elections against FDR. It was called the Silver Legion. It was led by William Dudley Pelley, had more than 15,000 members at its peak, and a compound called Murphy Ranch with a 20,000-gallon fuel storage tank ready to either take over America or wait out an eventual Nazi takeover. There's some autarky. Very much in the style of the man in the high castle. What was this Silver Legion, and how close did they actually come to taking over America? That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, who actually did make the trains run on time. Not that she wanted to, mind you, but you see, the trains were bringing cat food, and trust me, enough mornings being woken up at 5 a.m., and even you might turn into a dictator. (laughs) The old saying is, of course, say what you will about Mussolini, but at least he made the trains run on time. That's not really true, but the fascists did achieve some pretty astounding results in their early years. We'll get into all of that in just a bit. But first, I want to welcome back onto the show our co-hosts for the day, Nick. So apparently hackers managed to hack into all of those robotic smart cat food delivery system things and can take control of all of them at will. No, he's got he's got an army of cat fascists. She actually, but yeah. Wait, it was a woman hacker. It was. I guess I'd feel proud, but... Wait, this is a real thing? It was yes. a real thing. Heard on the radio this morning. Oh my God. <laughs> Watch out for your cats and their food. <laughs> and Anna. Murphy Ranch sounds like a really bad flavor of chips. Or a, or like a pizza place. Ooh, yeah. yeah. God. <laughs> pizza Ranch and Papa Murphy's combining. Yeah, right. Exactly. I don't want to know what chintzy decorations they have on the walls there. <laughs> All right, guys. So... You know there's nothing more fascist than tradition, and we do have a tradition on this show, so it is time for us to do our fake sponsor. Mm -hmm. 
every series we plug a local beer. We get no money for it and have no legal relationship with the brewery. That's what makes it a fake sponsor. But we do it because we love the beer. So what are we drinking today? Today we are drinking uh, Utapil's Skolsch. Copacetic yes. Skolsch style from Utapil's Brewing. Utapel's Brewing from Minneapolis, and Skolsch, it's like a Kolsch style, and the pun is uh, Minnesota Vikings, they're from Minnesota, and Skol is the Vikings, like, cheer, right? Skol Vikings! Yes. Allegedly. Which we heard in our Viking Berserkers series is probably not something that the Vikings actually used as a toast, but it is an Old Norse word, Skol meaning bowl or drinking vessel. And today, in mm. many Scandinavian languages like Danish, it means cheers. Cheers. Yeah. We did not pour our beer into bowls, as we should have to have done this properly. Have. Or but... drinking horn, at least. Yeah. Being serious about this. We're such amateurs. I know. Anyway, bottoms up. Whoop. So this series, uh, this fascism series, is coming out in conjunction with our super deep dive series, Sex in the Third Reich. Ooh, over... super deep dive. <laughs> oh, yeah. Coming out over on our other show, The History of Sex. Go check that out. But we are exploring the other stuff that isn't necessarily about sex and gender, namely this particular form of government called fascism. Now, last time we heard all about what fascism actually is, which we did superbly, and then we ineptly kind of fumbled our way through uh, whether Trump actually qualifies as a fascist or proto-fascist, and we got kind of triggered. But uh, that's what this kind of topic will do to you. So, uh, Especially if you're drinking Uta pills. Especially if you're <laughs> drinking Uta pills. So today should be a little bit less uh, heated, but just equally interesting. I'm coming out fighting. <laughs> Let's talk about some American fascists for real. Much as in Germany, the fascist movement in America was birthed in catastrophe. But, I thought you were going to say in a beer hall. But... <laughs> <laughs> but unlike Germany, that catastrophe was not the Great War. It was the Great Depression. Fascism in America emerged as one of the responses to the Great Depression. There were a lot of unusual movements that cropped up at that time. Because as far as many people were concerned at the time, it was basically the end of capitalism as they saw it. It was an unprecedented disaster, and it seemed like the train had finally gone off the rails for good. They called it the failure of capitalism. So people started looking around for alternatives. And one thing they came up with was technocracy, which we've covered in depth on our show already. Mm -hmm. Another was socialism, some policies of which would get wrapped into Roosevelt's New Deal, watered-down versions of it. Huey Long even proposed a plan including universal basic income. Every man a king! <laughs> so there were a lot of different ideas suddenly seeming like viable possibilities, and one of them was fascism. Now, people had seen the success, or rather what some perceived as success, of Mussolini in Italy. And there was the famous saying, of course, at least he made the trains run on time, which is not at all true. The trains were neither more on time than before, nor was he the one responsible for what improvements there were to the trains. That was actually, like, basically policies enacted before him, and they just kind of came to fruition during his term, so he took credit for them. 
But nevertheless, the idea was, say what you might about fascism's methods, but at least it gets results. And that's debatable, but some people at the time saw it as evident. I wonder if that was a sarcastic saying that just got out of hand. Well, yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) For some people, even at the time, I'm sure it was very sarcastic. Anyway, what's more, Mussolini was not automatically seen as a villain. Quite to the contrary, even Franklin Delano Roosevelt is on record as speaking fairly positively of Il Duce. For example, in June 1933, Roosevelt basically praised Mussolini in a letter to an American envoy. Quote, I am much interested and deeply impressed by what he has accomplished and by his evidenced honest purpose of restoring Italy and seeking to prevent general European trouble. Then in another letter, a few weeks later, he wrote, I don't mind telling you in confidence that I am keeping in fairly close touch with the admirable Italian gentleman. That's an interesting phrase. Yup. So, Mussolini may not have made the trains run on time, but fascist states across Europe were actually kind of getting stuff done. I mean, in the midst of the Great Depression, their programs, funded through deficit spending in the case of Mussolini or selling bonds in the case of Hitler, I always wondered how they got the funds to do their programs. That's, That's as much as I could dig up. In the midst of the Great Depression, their programs were actually putting people back to work at the time when they most needed it. And that made the rest of the world sit up and take notice. So in the midst of all this, along comes a man in America named William Dudley Pelly, who was a bit of an odd fellow from the very start. He had had an out-of-body experience and thereafter believed himself in communication with mystical beings who told him to create a paramilitary organization after an unknown house painter became chancellor of Germany. Okay, that's... Policy of violence and magic. It's a thing. Yeah. (laughs) It really is. Wow. Yeah, so essentially his vision told him that he was to be the next Hitler. How did he get this out-of-body experience? Did he get hit on the head by something, or...? Um, no, I don't think it was anything that movie-esque. I I forget exactly what the circumstances were, but I remember it wasn't, like, in the movies. Now, if I had a vision like that that said that I was going to be the next Hitler, personally, I would be mortified and seriously questioning myself. (laughs) I mean, today being compared to Hitler is, like, the worst possible thing, also the most common thing on the internet, Um, but not so for Pelly and not so at the time. At the time... It didn't have the same effect as it would today, being compared to Hitler. See, you have to remember that in the 1930s, the Nazis hadn't yet actually revealed the full extent of their genocidal tendencies. What year was the... when they hosted the Olympics? 1936. Ah, all right. Yep. So not pariahs yet. They were not pariahs yet. They were obvious racists from the start. They made no secrets about that. And there was international controversies about it. But they weren't like, okay, these people are genocidal maniacs that need to be taken down yet. They just were like, we need to exert some pressure. In fact, later, speaking of the Olympics, when the Olympics were set to be held in Hitler's Berlin in 1936, there was a movement in America to boycott the Olympics in protest. So that's showing you that they they were exerting some pressure, right? Right. But... 
Jesse Owens, the famous African-American track star, actually said, no, I'm not boycotting. How can you ask me to give up this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity because of how they treat Jews over there when this is how you treat blacks over here, was his point. Essentially, he was saying, let's call a spade a spade. Racism isn't racism, whether it's about Jews or blacks, whether it's Germany or America or whatever. And then he cleaned up. At the Olympics, he yeah. certainly did. <laughs> no, actually, and that was a thing for the Nazis. It was a big embarrassment for the Nazis. They had to come up with a whole kind of like ideological explanation. They claimed that the African race was more primitive and therefore closer to like beasts and therefore had an unfair advantage in physical prowess, which is just like, of course, it's absurd. But it's like the knots that you tie yourself in in order to make your ideology make sense. Anyway, the point is that racism was commonplace at the time, not just in Germany, but pretty much everywhere. So having a vision that says that you're going to be the next Hitler was not necessarily as damning to people at the time as it would be today. So, Pelly thinks that he's going to be the next Hitler, and in 1933, the same year that Hitler comes to power, Pelly founds an organization that he calls the Silver Legion, and it starts to take off. So that's not actually a Marvel product. It feels like it should be. <laughs> yeah. So this organization starts to take off. By 1934, just one year after its founding, it grows to about 15,000 members. So it's not just one nut job on a street corner shouting at rats. I mean, it was a movement. And I think that is what makes this story so significant for me, because it's like it was tapping into something inherent in the American psyche at the time, something lurking there, and it was just sort of bringing that out into the open. Although the clan was only about a decade away out from having multiple millions now. Oh, that's what I'm talking yeah. about. No, I... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, compared to the clan, it is very small, but I'm using this as like a lever to kind of point right. at stuff like that, right? Yeah. Also, you know anything about the German-American Bund? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. The German-American Bund. Yeah. Established in 1936. Do you have stats for membership on that? I have the impression it was significantly larger. For listeners that... that might not know about it, it was sort of the Nazi propaganda front group mostly in the northeast I believe. Yeah, so they weren't their own fascist movement they were like americans in support of in support of hitler pretty yeah, explicitly basically. i know they had this big gathering in um, madison, madison square, square garden, garden right? and there was like a huge like george washington on the stage next to like german insignias and like, yeah. swastikas and stuff um i want to say it was around thirty thousand, but i would i'd have to double check my okay. facts there Double checked. The German American Boon had about twenty five thousand members, so about ten thousand more than Pelly's Silver Legion. Also, the Boon's leader, Fritz Julius Kuhn, was found to have embezzled some fourteen thousand dollars from the organization, but the Boon decided not to seek prosecution on the principle that he was effectively the Fuhrer of the organization and thus had absolute power can do whatever he wanted. Wow, isn't fascism nice? The U.S. government prosecuted anyway, and his ass ended up in jail. Now, back to the show and Pelly's Silver Legion. So, the Silver Legion is what he called it. Now, members of the Silver Legion were called the Silver Shirts, and they were modeled after Mussolini's black shirts, or Hitler's brown shirts, those are the stormtroopers, or the black shirts of Mosley over in England. As we mentioned last time, England had its fascist movement too, as did almost every 
Western country at the time. Or the brown shorts of Spode. <laughs> now our local homegrown American is apple pie, analog to the black shirts and brown shirts, were the silver shirts. Seems like it's harder to get the dye, though, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, really. Metallic? I mean, rayon wasn't involved yet, right? Yeah. I can imagine. It's a serious just... question, though. How no, do we seriously. get the silver shirts? Uh, self-sufficiency and autarky, obviously. We okay. Had to... That's why we had to expand into Canada, oh, don't you know? Well, that ah. explains a lot. I mean, it must have been gray, right? It would have to have been gray, but you would call yourself the gray shirts, but that doesn't sound as good. But you can't actually have a the silver shirt yeah. because that would be prohibitive, especially in the middle of the Depression. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm not trying to get off so on this. Do you have a picture? Aluminum shirts. Speaking of uniform, though, the uniform consisted of a silver button-down shirt with a blue tie, baggy blue corduroy trousers with leggings, you know, that kind of like wrap around leathery cord stuff that goes around your calf. And on the left chest of the shirt, over the heart, is emblazoned a red letter L, which stands for liberty or liberation or loyalty or legion. This is really confused and dumb, and I hate it. (laughs) Well? This is bad, and they should feel bad for a lot of reasons, but this is a terrible uniform. (laughs) Why? You haven't described a great... Hugo Boss, this is not. No. <laughs> Leggings? A silver shirt? What do they even mean by silver shirt? And a tie? Like and really, an ambiguous you... L? Elsa She-Wolf of the Silver Legion is not going to be a best-selling porn, speaking of the history of sex. This is why it's an also-ran superhero team. Yeah. <laughs> Membership in the Legion was open to all over the age of 18. Oh yeah, except, <clears throat> except Jews and Blacks, of course. Uh, Pelly himself looked like something out of a comic book, speaking of comic books, with silver hair and a mustache-goatee combo, somewhere between, like, Colonel Sanders and the classic cartoon kind of depiction of the devil. <laughs> like, he had that kind of Van Dyke kind of looking mm-hmm. thing. In fact, a North Carolina wanted poster for him described him as, quote, height, 5 feet 7 inches, weight 130 pounds, heavy eyebrows, wears mustache and a Van Dyke, has dark gray eyes, very penetrating, good oh. good talker, highly educated, interested in physic research. And I think by physic, I think they meant to say psychic research, yeah. but that's what they wrote. It paints a picture. <laughs> yes. And he's wearing blue corduroy pants? No, his followers are wearing blue corduroy pants. Oh, that makes well, me angry. Too. Okay. Yeah. So that was William Dudley Pelly. And he began going around with 40 armed bodyguards with him, instructing his members to keep sawed-off shotguns with 40,000 rounds of ammo in their homes to protect, quote, white Christian America. 40,000 rounds. 40,000 rounds. Where do you store that? In your safe that's the size of a garage, I guess? Yeah. You get one (laughs) fire and the entire neighborhood is dead. And, let's not forget, constructing a self-sustaining compound called Murphy Ranch that would serve as a base of operations after the inevitable fascist takeover, possibly also a piece of joint. <laughs> so where was this Murphy Ranch? Um, I think it was in, I want to say California, or it might have been Washington. West Coast? It was on the West Coast. Huh. Yeah. By a hidden valley? <laughs> <laughs> Blue corduroy cheese. Right. What happened to all that <laughs> ammo? Did it get requisitioned oh, for the war effort? Actually, in the Los Angeles Hills. Okay, no, I so think I've California. heard of this. Yeah, I think okay. I've heard of this in like your weird California book. Maybe. 
But like seriously, they must have taken it for the war effort, right? Or the did ammo? they? Yeah, oh, I mean, I'm sure it was they would have had to. Yeah. Yep, Pelly was an eccentric figure, and that's putting it mildly. I mean, he called FDR's New Deal the Jew Deal, and he planned to install a new government in which he would be called the Chief a title similar to Mussolini's Il Duce, or mm. Hitler's Der Führer. I guess you don't need to change up the inauguration song. Hail to the chief. Hail to the chief. We are all wearing quartery swaps. Speaking of music, music was always important to fascist states. The Nazis, for example, were all about their marching songs. And their well, Wagner. And their Wagner. And their Wagner. Well, so too with the Silver Legion. So... Nick and Anna, what do you guys think was the song for the Silver Legion? Oh, you described a man with no sartorial tastes, the paranoid style, and it looks like a tiny little tin devil. <laughs> yep. John so... Philip Sousa? <laughs> <laughs> uh, somebody inebriated trying to play a banjo with their teeth. Maybe screaming at rats through screaming. a megaphone. Tom Waits? Tom Experimental Waits. stage? I don't know. <laughs> Well, I've got a treat for you today. Oh, All right. God. Can we get to hear it? So the song that was the song for them was the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Oh, okay. We yes. know that one. Facts. But I thought, you know, that song is still so much part of our culture today that just playing that song wouldn't really capture it for us. So to really bring out the dark fascist sentiment, <laughs> I decided to mash it up with a song from German industrial band Die Krups. Music to count 40,000 rounds of ammo, too. <laughs> All right, so that's Battle Hymn of the Republic. You had too much fun style. with that. <laughs> yes, yes, I did. I'm probably going to get sued, too. Perfect. It's kind of weird that they were hung up on that, given that the original Battle Hymn was, you know, didn't have, like, strong abolitionist associations. Yeah, so I was the... wondering if they might have to change words, but... Yeah. Hmm. Well... Also appeared in a dream. Wait, appeared in a dream? Yeah, the author of the words of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Appeared in a dream to the person who wrote the song? The words appeared in a dream. Mine eyes have seen yeah. the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling down the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored, etc. Yeah, all that stuff. Huh. And then it was set to music later. No, the music was actually an old American folk tune that most recently was known was John Brown's body was a moldering in the grave. Right, yeah. Oh, okay. John Brown's body was a moldering in the grave. Okay, and then they just like, turned it into the grave. Etc. I went to Harper's Ferry. It was really great. Cool. They have an animatronic John Brown. It's kind of weird. Hmm. Sorry, cut this. Sorry. <laughs> nice. By the way, uh, I should be specific. The song that I matched up with, it's by the German industrial band Die Krups, and it's called Nazis auf Speed. 
which literally means Nazis on speed, and it's a song about Nazis taking an early form of meth called pervitine, which is a real thing they did. Pervitine? Pervitine. That's what they called it. Yeah. And it totally effed over the Nazis. They were like, this is going to be a wonder drug to make super soldiers, but they gave it to them without very much like experimentation. And it turned out like, yeah, it would make them really fierce like on day one, but then they would be wrecked for days two, three, and maybe four. Yeah. And also there was all kinds of insubordination, all just terrible stuff. Wait, you're saying Nazi science went wrong? (laughs) Somehow. Wow, that's weird. (laughs) Anyway, so back to the Silver Legion. Now, they wanted to set up a dictatorship, as we said, but the particular flavor of that dictatorship surprised me and may come as a surprise to you. It was... Bubblegum! <laughs> no. Uh, Umami. Pumpkin spice. <laughs> <laughs> Salty it caramel. In, it came out in the autumn. <laughs> Pumpkin spice. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, the flavor of that dictatorship was it was supposed to be a Christian theocracy, believe it or not. Uh, The Silver Legion considered itself to be deeply Christian, albeit of a quite esoteric mystical variety. And when Pelley ran for president in 1936, he called his party the Christian Party. And this brings to the fore another lesser-known aspect of fascism that we didn't talk about last time, I don't know if it's really like a defining characteristic, but it was common to many fascist parties. Basically, how easily these movements managed to twist the local religion to make it work for their ideology. In most cases, they happen to be in Christian countries, so it's Christianity that got twisted. Christianity is, of course, a religion that has to turn the other cheek, embrace the leper kind of doctrines. You know, it's not at all something that you would expect could easily be manhandled into fascism, but it actually didn't take very much effort. For example, Nazi Germany gave birth to a sympathetic sect called Positive Christianity, which we will be talking about a little in an episode of The History of Sex. Um, And yes, it turns out that religion is a sex thing. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Uh, At least it was in their case. Also, fascist Portugal under Salazar had Catholic priests in the highest echelons of power, Some people even called it clerical fascism in his case. And here, too, Pelley's Silver Legion was set to make religion a cornerstone of his fascism. They basically wanted to institute what they called a Christian theocratic dictatorship. Now, the Christianity that Pelley wanted was not exactly orthodox. Among other things, he believed... That the Christian God was just one of many. Okay, that's a new tack. Yep, that kind of changes things up a bit. He also believed that Christ was, quote, the greatest psychic that ever trod the earth. And also that the Old Testament was the negative introvert element, while the New Testament was the positive extrovert element. Whatever that means. And finally... Pop psychology bullshit. Also older than you might think. (laughs) And finally, he believed that man was half monkey and half angel. Yep. <laughs> Again, you know, if this was a super team of, of a legion, this, this would be feasible. Yeah. But yep. it would be a really weird action figure. But, so all of that weird stuff aside, Pelly still believed himself Christian, and he still loudly proclaimed his ambition to install a Christian theocratic dictatorship in the United States of America. That never came to pass, however. The Silver Legion 
hit its high point of popularity in 1934 with that 15,000 members that we mentioned earlier. And when Pelley ran for president in 1936 against Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he wasn't like the other runner, he was like one of many on the ticket, he won only 1,600 votes. And of course, don't you know, that was a Jewish conspiracy of rigged votes, according to Of course. How could it possibly be that a tiny organization had only slightly more votes than people inside of it? Yeah. By 1938, the movement had already dwindled down to about 5,000, but it was still around and kicking. And the death blow finally came with Pearl Harbor. On December 7th, 1941, America was attacked, and within a few months... Pelly had been arrested and convicted of high treason and sedition. The Legion was disbanded, and it basically just never recovered after that. Pelly spent eight years in prison and lived the rest of his life as a UFO nut. Oh, not super yep. surprising. And he was preaching a mystical sci-fi philosophy that he called soulcraft. And then he finally died in 1965, and the New York Times memorialized him as, quote, an agitator without a significant following, unquote. Damning with faint praise. Or no praise. <laughs> Actually, no praise at all. Yeah. Just damning. So this leaves me with a question. Why did fascists make it into power in Italy and Germany, not to mention Spain, Portugal, and a bunch of other places? Romania. Romania being one of them. Croatia. Croatia. <laughs> but not in America, Right. Was it because America was just that much better than those other places, or were there other reasons for this? Why was Pelly, you know, for as many people as did go into it, it was still a very small movement, right? Well, people were actually asking basically the same question at the time. In 1935, Sinclair Lewis published a novel called It Can't Happen Here, depicting a fictional America where fascists rise to power. And it was basically the original man in the high castle in, you know, 1935. And that rise to power never actually happened. But the question is, well, why not? So first of all, you might dismiss the idea out of hand by pointing to how embarrassingly low the number of votes was that Pelley got in that presidential election, 1,600 votes. So you could say, well, you know, he never could have made it. So what's the point of asking, right? But, hmm... That apparent unpopularity might actually be a little bit misleading. He only made it onto the ballot in one state, Washington state. Mm. So had he been on the ballot in all 50 states, he would have gotten probably a lot more votes. If we do some uh, like very poorly informed, bad, quick math, 1,600 votes times 50 states, that, that would be 80,000. And what that comes out to as a percentage of the population in 1936, I actually did the real math, is still pretty small. It's 0.0006%, so it's still very obscure. But here's another thing. Hitler and the Nazi movement was actually super obscure as well. They were very, very obscure for most of their early years, and it really only started to gain steam in Germany when the Great Depression galvanized mass dissatisfaction with the Weimar government. And until then, he was really just a no-name right-wing nutjob, just like Pelly. I mean, he had a little bit, he had a little larger following. But point is obscure, right? So I don't think it's that easy to just completely dismiss the question out of hand. So 
why didn't fascists rise to power in America? Any thoughts? Well, he saw what they were wearing. (laughs) Also, if you compare the economic policies of the Weimar government compared to Roosevelt, Mm -hmm. if you're making the thesis that a lot of the success of fascism was basically just implementing basic Keynesianism in a depression, Mm -hmm. we had a very strong centralized governmental, extremely popular figure doing that here. Yes. So, which a lot of the more quote-unquote liberal anti-New Deal parties Mm -hmm. were prone to use as talking points in the Mm -hmm. 30s that Roosevelt was basically our Hitler and Mussolini. Yeah. No, I'm glad that you brought up Roosevelt's policies because, well, I'm going to get into that a little bit later here. So uh, the real answer, I think, is basically it comes down to why didn't the fascists rise to power in America? Because America wasn't desperate enough at the time. Sure. And there wasn't a power vacuum or someone not even. Yeah. As bad as the Great Depression was in America, it was actually much worse in many other countries, including those in which fascism took control. So if you take Germany, for example, Germans suffered even higher unemployment. It was like 25% at the peak in America, whereas it was more like 30 to 40% in Germany. Meanwhile, uh, they were also, the Germans were also still haunted by the specter of hyperinflation from the 1920s, which saw people carving up horses in the street because the hunger was that bad. It also saw people wallpapering their walls with Reichsmarks, you know, the currency of Germany at the time, because it was literally cheaper to use bills than it was to buy Buy wallpaper. Wallpaper Wallpaper was more expensive than the money it took to buy it. It's been really rewarding to work at the Mint in Weimar Weimar Germany. (laughs) Right. It's like, okay, oh, good, good. You're setting a fire. Thank you. Yep. And there were also pictures, I love these, of children playing with blocks. But when you look closer, it turns out that those aren't blocks. Those are bundles of bills. Yeah. <laughs> so, children's toys. Uh, they had also been through a Bolshevik rebellion, and they saw rampant sex tourism exploiting locals trying to make ends meet during the worst times. And it just gets it just goes so on down the line. Those were the kinds of conditions that made Germans desperate enough to say, I don't care anymore, just give me strong government. America was not at that point, even with the Great Depression. It just wasn't there when Pelley ran for office. So that's why I think it never came to power in America. More sort of Russia during the 90s. Mm, Interesting point. Yes. Mm. Another thing, and here's where we circle back to what you were saying, Nick. Americans had been given at least a Band-Aid fix for the economy. So FDR's New Deal, right, took the edge off of the Great Depression enough for people's nerves to settle down a bit. And many of the more radical movements of the time actually proposed economic reforms far more comprehensive than what the New Deal was, and arguably with potential for far greater benefit, like Huey Long's universal basic income, or even technocracy's still more radical proposal for universal basic income achieved through eliminating currency altogether and instituting a four-day, 20-hour work week. (laughs) Go back and see our yeah. series on technocracy for that weird but fascinating logic. Mm-hmm. And Pelly himself actually proposed universal basic income of a sort. He proposed issuing every American citizen stock in the corporate state and thus effectively basic income. I'm guessing that he wasn't going to hand that out to Jews and blacks. 
<laughs> Out of curiosity, how did women fare in this little arrangement, or did they not factor at all? Good question. I really didn't find that much with reference to women. Hmm. Like, were they wearing corduroy skirts? <laughs> That's a no. crime. I'm pretty sure there were women in the movement, but I don't have, like, stats, hmm. I'm afraid. So pretty marginal, not really. Yeah, I don't think it was great. But anyway, politics being what it was, all these proposals were basically just too extreme for voters to stomach. And the New Deal rocked the boat less. It was more palatable for the American voting populace. And so the majority of voters accepted it and felt like they didn't need to resort to something like fascism. They didn't need something that extreme. So but, they didn't vote Pelly or anybody else into office. Yeah, it is kind of hard to realize in retrospect how sharply things were divided in the 30s between people that wanted to do way, way more than actually happened and people that wanted to do nothing at all despite the Great Depression. So Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a huge, huge thing. Yeah. Yeah. So in the end... For Pelly to actually have won against FDR, I think the American people would have had to have been far more desperate for change than they were. Probably would have needed four more years of Hoover. Four, <laughs> four more years of Hoover maybe would have done it. Anyway, that's why we never saw a man in the high castle. That's why the fascists never made it into power here in America, I think. What does all of this tell us? I think it tips us off a little bit from our high horse. Like I said at the beginning, that pithy phrase, the greatest generation, it does have a little asterisk after it. I mean, yes, we punched Hitler in the mustache, but the fact that we spawned our own fascist movement, to me, adds a little bit more nuance to the picture. I don't mean to say that a couple of bad apples ruins the whole bunch, but it does remind us that everyone is susceptible to this sort of toxic demagoguery, true then, true today. The existence of the Silver Legion in America, you know, just shows us that we have our dark side too. I mean, not just slavery, not just Manifest Destiny, not just, you know, the Japanese internment camps, but even our very own homegrown fascist movement. And given different conditions, perhaps a desperation as severe as in Germany in the 1930s, you know, we could have gone a different route in history. And you can easily imagine an alternative history scenario where the man in the high castle actually becomes a reality. And the flag that flies over that fascist America might just bear not a swastika, but a scarlet letter L. And be made of corduroy. <laughs> it, would be, it would be sewn from corduroy. Oh my god, worst timeline. <laughs> well, that's it for our episode today, folks. Nick and Anna, thanks for being on the show once again. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Seriously, how are the shirts silver? That doesn't make any sense. Maybe they're just gray. I don't know. All right. Folks, be sure to check out our other show, The History of Sex, for our ongoing super deep dive series, Sex in the Third Reich. Throughout this year, we're going to be looking at sex and gender in Nazi Germany from pretty much every perspective, man, woman, queer, straight, non-binary, you name it. Check that out on The History of Sex. Also, if you want to support both shows, you can do so on Patreon. Our Patreon is just one account, and you'll get access to ad-free episodes of both shows, you can also get a hand-drawn portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a silver legionnaire with a scarlet letter L and some rockin' corduroys. No! Or maybe somebody with sense kicking the crap out of somebody in corduroys and a scarlet letter L. L on your forehead! <laughs> Whatever you want. I will make you look awesome. I promise. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. Yeah.